Welcome to episode 187 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe Johnson. Thanks for joining us. Uh, uh, I'm your host, Stuart Baker. We're usually lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, but this is a bonus episode. Uh, it's going to be just me and not that much of me uh, talking to Tom Bossert, uh, who's the president's Homeland Security Advisor uh, and who has responsibility, among other things, for cybersecurity. We'll talk about what it's like to brief President Trump, uh, Peggy Noonan's three stages of White House staff intoxication, um, and then dive deep on Section 702 of FISA and the effort to get a clean reauthorization of that uh, provision uh, by the end of the year, something on which Tom has a lot of passion and a great deal of expertise. And then we'll talk about... Uh, some of the cybersecurity issues raised by the executive order early in the president's term that called for a batch of reports which are now uh, filtering into the White House and creating a new focus on policies on how to protect uh, the civilian side of government, uh, the critical infrastructures in the private sector, uh, and how to deter cyber attacks in the future. So kick back. Uh, it will be almost all Tom and an occasional prod or nudge from me. Okay, I'm here with Tom Bossert uh, in his uh, newly renovated office. The, the rug is so much better than it was the last uh, administration or two. We still have our feet firmly on the ground. Yep. Uh, and um, I thought I'd start out just asking you, uh, uh, you've had this job before, at least you've seen this job done very close uh, up, uh, uh, and it's, I've been in that same situation where you think you know what the job is, and then you come in, and uh, and it's never quite what you expected. So let me ask, uh, how is it different from what you saw Fran Townsend doing in the uh, uh, in Bush 43? Well, in many ways, it's the same job. In many ways, it's different. But I'll uh, perhaps provide, and for those of you that know this already or heard me already say this, I apologize, but I'll provide maybe an homage to uh, Peggy Noonan, who uh, wrote a piece a long time ago that I remember reading when I worked for President Bush. She said there's three phases to every White House staffer's career. The first phase is to pinch yourself and think, oh, my goodness, I can't believe where I am and what I'm doing. It's a quite exciting, exuberant phase. And the second phase is I don't know exactly why or how I do my job or what the nature of it is or was or the history of it, but I understand exactly how I fit in here and how everyone else fits in, and I know where I, I play a role and how to play that role, and I'm firing on all cylinders and things are going great. And, uh, and, and phase three is to one day look around and think, I can't believe that these are the people that run the world. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, typically when you get to phase three, it's time to go because it's a reflection that you've become a little worn out or jaded. Yep. And I thought that was an interesting piece. And so I saw her in transition, and she said, uh, Tom, how are you doing? Uh, and what made you come back in a second time and so forth? And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to think about your piece, and I'll get back to you. So here's what I've decided. I've decided that it happens in reverse the second time. You come in. Oh, and the, the people are not the people that used to run the world, so you think maybe they really aren't as good as the last crowd. Well, you don't know, and, and yep. they don't know exactly what their job is yet, and they're yep. still in the pinch-me phase, and, and they're still kind of quite excited by all the things around them, and, and you've seen all those things. So you, I showed up 
thinking, oh my goodness, look at the people around me, how, or how are they going to perform their jobs, and, and when are they going to get into a position where they're stable and firing on all cylinders, and until they get to that point, I'm the guy starting the job thinking, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And then uh, phase two, which is where I am now, sets in, and it's the same phase two for both analyses. Everything's firing. Everything's also. firing. Now it's a little bit different to your question. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a different role for certain people, and, and every yes. person has their own interests, and uh, and you have to modify your own behavior to fit into the organizational network and structure and spheres of influence. But it's pretty much the same. And so I find myself to be, uh, after ten years, promoted ten feet. Uh, from the deputy's chair to the principal's chair, and it's a little bit of a different job to be a principal where you do things like this and speak to the people and speak outside the building uh, in a way that represents the president. But uh, it's also a lot of down and in, and I'm firing on all cylinders right now. I'm feeling pretty comfortable, and my colleagues are are doing the same. When I I leave, though, the third phase, when I leave this time, I'll be pinching myself. I can't believe a glass I'm done. (laughs) No, 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 I'll be pinching myself saying I can't believe I had the opportunity to do that twice my yeah. life for two different presidents. It's, it's uh, I mean, uh, my head is off to you. I could not do it again. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, it's very impressive. But I, I, I do think, you know, the Homeland Security process from the department up through the chief of staff uh, does appear to be as smooth running as anything in the administration. And maybe it's because everybody has played so many different roles already. Uh, I hope that's true, um, but I hope that doesn't mean that the rest of the administration is comparatively not doing well. I think that um, there's a number of things that that, that, that that contribute to that, and I think a lot of it does have to do with experienced leadership. But remember, the president plays a big role in that. He not only put us all in our different relative positions, but he then had the the, uh, the leadership instincts to empower us to do what we thought was right. And for that, uh, I think he deserves a lot of credit. And uh, it's not without knowledge. He didn't say do it without my knowledge and roll out as if you were uh, a bad manager. I think um, quite to the contrary. He's had us um, on our kind of homeland issues in his presence and in his office more than most. And his instinct is to is to allow us a little latitude, you know, and that happened through the hurricanes. It's happening through uh, intelligence uh, reform and reauthorization, and it's happening for um, a counterterrorism mission. You know, he's he's uh, in the detailed weeds now of understanding it. Wow. But he's also taking the advice and guidance of people that have, have learned over the years different things that might work and not work. So, actually, I think the, the president deserves some credit. Now, I understand his style is to be a slightly destabilizing force in the, in the, in the debate in <laughs> right. some cases. But, uh, you know, uh, I think that he has that prerogative, and I think he feels often poorly treated, and so he, he fights back in a direct way. And, um, and so... Not much different than most presidents who do it in our private, you know, right, who blow up at their staff. That's but. right, and, and you've been there as well. So um, he doesn't blow up at us, but uh, you know how it works. Um, many presidents probably claim to always be calm and cool, but I'm I'm certain they, they uh, an important part of their self-image is that and the, what they portray to the world. But you know, we've we've all heard the stories uh, from people who were there about. Uh, bad moments in presidential history uh, with practically everybody uh, who has uh, had that job. Um, so, you know, with with President Bush, uh, 43, uh, going into briefing was an exercise. I mean, you were going to be grilled. Uh, he was very loyal to the folks who worked for him, but that did not prevent him from uh, really embarrassing them with his questions. Uh, uh, how is How is... Uh, is it to brief President Trump? 
seems like presidents have an innate ability to understand people around them who know what they're talking about and understand what people around them don't. And uh, I think they both share uh, a common trait in that asking questions is not meant to uh, question your judgment. It's meant to determine whether you know what you're talking about. Right. And so in some ways it's similar. In other ways, you have to remember that this President Trump is trying to challenge the status quo that he perceived to exist before he arrived here in Washington. Right. And so his questions are meant to determine whether you know what you're talking about. But then there's a second layer of intent. You know, that is to determine whether you're willing to be innovative and break some glass, break mm-hmm. some eggs, do things differently. And if he gets the sense that you're giving him the answer that was the formulaic approach that ex- ex- existed in this field or in that particular subject matter for a long time, then his immediate tendency is to move towards how you could change the answer because you're going to get the same result if you keep applying the same solution. So it's a little bit different in that for at least he and I and most of the senior staff here, he's past the determining whether you know what we're talking about. Uh, he's into determining whether we can do something different. Okay, and so part of his questions are, are you just giving me back talking points you brought up from the bureaucracy and haven't thought about? That's right, and I'll tell you, um, people ask me about my interview with him I had mine in Mar-a-Lago. You know, it was a pretty transparent process. He announced everybody before we came in for an interview. So, <laughs> well, you know, it's a little hard for you to hide. <laughs> it's, a, it's a gauntlet of uh, no, but it was great. I think he wanted to hear the reaction of the media and the people within your um, within your community to the very notion of him interviewing you. Mm-hmm. So that was an intentional thing on his part to get everybody's name out there. Um, but I honestly thought to myself that he was a guy that was willing to try something new. So if you want to come back into government with the opportunity to, to try something new or innovate, this is the president to do it because he is by no means constrained by political um, uh, contrivance. He doesn't have any desire for some future political office except for perhaps to keep this one for eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he doesn't make any of his decisions based on those poll results, at least in my worldview, in my experience. Um, his, his idea is who cares if people are going to be upset with it? Is it the right thing to do? Is mm-hmm. it going to achieve a better result? And uh, that's, that's empowering. Okay. Well, let, I, I, I don't want to spend all the time on the, uh, the president. Uh, uh, you've taken on 702 reform uh, and renewal um, as one of the topics, as you should. I mean, it, it's central to your cyber responsibilities, your terrorism uh, responsibilities. Uh, but you've played a lot of... Uh, you, you, played a substantial role in trying to figure out what we're going to do to get uh, 702 uh, uh, reauthorized. Uh, and I wanted just to walk through the issues. And the first is, uh, the administration has said, and I, I kind of agree with them, that uh, this ought to be a clean reauthorization without a, uh, a sunset. Uh, um, and we have Tom Cotton has said he agrees with that. Uh, but very few people on the Hill are buying the idea of a sunset. Uh, and I, my question is, what do you say to people who uh, who say, we've always had a sunset in 702, and it's a valuable thing to reconsider this program. It's a big deal. Uh, it has a big impact potentially on privacy, and we ought to be able to decide every few years whether we want to keep it. <clears throat> well, first, Tom Cotton's uh, demonstrated some adult leadership. And I, I believe that clean and permanent is the appropriate approach. And I don't mean that it's the right approach because it's our position. I mean, it's the appropriate approach having studied this. That said, uh, the, the difference between a sunset and Congress's standing prerogative to change a law at any time they choose to 
is that Congress is choosing to force the time and place, and they're choosing to do it in a way that they can't future predict. And so uh, it injects politics mm -hmm. into a intelligence debate, and it does it in a way that um, that you can't predict. Uh, we'll, we'll have conditions in eight or ten years that you and I can't forecast. Right. And in eight or ten years, it might be a really inconvenient political thing to do to reopen something that can be a complicated authority and look at it. But they'll have no choice but to do so. Fine, that's their prerogative. I, I don't think that uh, that we will fall on our sword over a permanence or a sunset provision. Uh, although I think it's the right thing to do, uh, treating it differently suggests that it is in some way a different or more uh, threatening provision in our surveillance authorities. I, I challenge that very, but mm -hmm. that very assumption. That said, maybe we should, for your listeners, explain that 702 is just one section of a larger Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Right. And what happens, in my view, is uh, either, in some cases, in corners, uh, intentional conflation, mm -hmm. the other sections of that act, uh, and in other corners, just a uh, truly um, a less informed and, and benign conflation. What they see in the reports, uh, stories of, uh, of Americans being caught up in surveillance, and they often don't realize that that is a traditional Title I surveillance operation where there's a foreign uh, power on one side of that phone and there's an American on the other. Well, that, that's, that's contemplated. That's legal. It's a quite appropriate thing to do, and, uh, and, and you've seen it in the news in political contexts. 702 is different. 702 is the authority that allows our U.S. government to surveil targets that present a national security interest that are overseas. So we're talking about foreign bad guys in foreign lands yep. having conversations uh, often and, and more often than not between and among foreigners. And so that's something that we've long standing and as a long practice done. Uh, but now the difference is we have new technology. So you now you have a foreign terrorist in a foreign land, let's say, who but, chooses but, but to But the wiretap occurs here. Well, he chooses to use Gmail because right. the United States you know, develops some great products, and they find that to be a, a useful tool. That doesn't make Google inherently bad, but it does make Google a U.S. company that deserves some protection, and we should afford them some benefit. And what we do is go to them and say, we're not going to hack into Google, although we maybe technically could. We'd like your cooperation. So we've organized a system through the scrutiny of Democrats and Republicans, lawyers uh, and non-lawyers alike, we've organized and developed a system that allows us to use the Gmail system in a permissive way at the order of a court in a very controlled fashion. We should continue doing that because we get to look at a foreign terrorist talking to another foreign terrorist about doing some very bad things. And, uh, you know, the... President's uh, Civil Liberties, uh, Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board uh, had great things to, to say about how valuable 702 was. The value is not even questionable at this point. So we get, as you said, cyber intelligence. We get terrorism intelligence. We get intelligence that, per that pertains to pretty traditional state-sponsored uh, threats. Now what you have to do is decide what type of protections do you want to put in place. We've got so many protections in place, they call them belt and suspenders. Right? Mm -hmm. so it's a redundancy that's unnecessary. But we've got the privacy and civil liberties oversight. We've got the court. Mm -hmm. And the court does a, a fine job. If you ever go through that process, I know you have. Yeah, I have. <clears throat> it's, uh, it, it's very demanding. We've got lawyers in, in different roles and functions. So lawyers for the departments and agencies, but also the inspectors general. Right. right? And if, as you go through them, these are not pushovers. 
So if you've ever been through the process and if you don't find it controlling enough, you, you haven't been through the process. Uh, and so I believe it to be a good process, and I believe that every um, uh, finding of potential malfeasance or mishandling has been identified by that oversight process. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so it's not been caught by something that we didn't contemplate as if someone uh, got away with, with, with a foul. The referee is working for us, and the referee calls fouls and brings them to the attention of the authorities and stops any kind of abuse. So I'm quite comfortable with it. That said, uh, there are those that are convinced that the collection itself is in some fashion or form unconstitutional. To them, I have an easy answer. Don't just take my word for it. A number of courts, including the Ninth Circuit, who's not very friendly to this particular administration by any stretch and and doesn't traditionally have a reputation for being conservative, uh, has found this to be a constitutional form of collection. So. Yeah, so so the many of the proposals to say, oh, well, if you're going to go do a search of the database for an Americans, you need you ought to get a warrant, you ought to have probable cause. It does seem to me a little bit as though they're they're taking a, an imitation uh, Fourth Amendment process, so sort of pretend Fourth Amendment process, the Fourth Amendment they wish we had but we don't, right. uh, and saying let's let's impose that statutorily even though it's not required constitutionally. So they're, the collection's constitutional. Yeah. People would like to challenge that assertion, but the reality is it's a constitutional collection of information. So uh, for those that say it's a warrantless search, they are simply trying to sell copy, okay. uh, yeah. I believe. And, and um, for those that then want to focus on how we treat the information that we've lawfully collected, uh, there's a different set of answers, right? And I don't want to be as cavalier about treating their concerns. Uh, for them, their concern is... What about Americans that might get caught up in it? Yes. Right? So the old analogy from the movies that we watch is uh, uh, the bad guy, a mobster, there's a lawful warrant, and the FBI's out in the van, and there's a wiretap up, and they're listening to his conversation. Right. And his grandmother calls him to talk to him about it, her, her recipe for right. you know, for tonight's dinner. That conversation between the innocent grandmother or the innocent old lady down the street and the, and the, the bad guy that has a wiretap lawfully uh, issued and, and up on him is 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 a long-standing concern in our American right ever ever since the '68 uh, uh, Title III Act. That's exactly right. And so and so uh, what what we do is we put in place uh, mitigation procedures to try to prevent against any kind of unnecessary collection. And the same thing goes for now a more digitally advanced world. Uh, we're not collecting phone calls. We're not listening to phone calls. We're not transcribing them. Uh, but when it does come to electronic media emails. Uh, you can you can scoop up the data and the electrons on that. And uh, somebody asked me once, uh, what if there are millions of Americans caught up in this? I said, well, then that means there are millions of Americans corresponding with terrorists, foreign <laughs> yes, <exactly>. terrorists <laughs> or national security threats on foreign land, and I'm moving. Right. Uh, that would be that would be a travesty. Um, the, the the question really is, uh, do you do you do you pick up an, uh, enough uh, potentially innocent? Uh, uh, correspondence in this process that you then that you then might be able to abuse them, and I think the answer to that is no because we've got a series of protections in place. You can't query that information without reason. You can't then take the results of your query, and this is again a query of a database, mm-hmm. not a search. Right. A search implies that you're doing something that requires a warrant. We've already done that. We've already collected it. Now the question is, how do you take what you've collected and go through it in an efficient way? Uh, and think of a Google search engine type of approach. Uh, when we do get those hits, uh, the information must go through people that have been trained to understand it and interpret it, 
and then there's still all the other protections that are in place. Right. So <clears throat> no matter what the volume and numbers are at the end of this process, as a little bit of a proof here test case, we've got uh, 10, as I've been told. Uh, if it's 12, I'll accede I'll to the number, but we're, on, we're, we're within a dozen uh, criminal cases where we've used information collected in a 702 uh, a lawful collection effort that then yielded a, a hit to a query that then provided information that was useful to law enforcement authorities that, that uh, you know, ultimately uh, brought the matter to a court in a criminal proceeding. So this so, whole fight about what to do about uh, what they it's called backdoor searches is about 12 searches? Right, but they're not backdoor searches. Right. Uh, they're lawfully collected information that then yield some law right. enforcement concern. And the law enforcement concern in this case is then uh, subject to the same evidence rules that everyone else is familiar with. And so if you're a defendant in a criminal matter and you want to see all the evidence that's going to be brought against you, you're given that evidence, as you know, in advance, mm -hmm. so you can form the best potential defense for yourself. You're also told the source of the information so you can challenge it in front of a court. Right. So the judge can look at your challenge to that evidence. So... Two other issues that come up all the time and, and have been the subject of legislation in this context are unmasking, which is not really a 702 issue, but it, it's an issue that has been of concern to especially Republicans. Uh, and there, you know, if you start from the proposition, I only want to change intelligence law when I've got uh, evidence that an abuse may have occurred. There's just no doubt that uh, uh, there was an abuse. Uh, there was a um, a leak of data about uh, uh, General Flynn, and uh, that uh, that leak of data was derived from a FISA wiretap uh, that was improperly uh, uh, unmasked and then leaked. Uh, and so, one of my questions is: I know you want a clean authorization, a clean clean bill. Um, where has the administration been on the question of unmasking and whether we should write down the unmasking rules and adopt them into statute and the like? Yeah, so a few things, though. The first is to make sure I reiterate the notion that we should be careful not to conflate Title I and right. Section 702. <clears throat> so to be honest with you, I have no idea, uh, although I can speculate, but I really don't have any factual idea what happened with uh, General Flynn and mm -hmm. all of the uh, you know, goings-on there. Um, and, you know, kind of pleased to say that I'm not a witness of fact in any of this. Um, but I can tell you that from what I've, you know, read in the same papers that you've read, it seems to me to have been a Title I issue, a Title I FISA mm -hmm. uh, authority. In yes. other words, in other words, one end of the party would be an uh, was an, an agent of a foreign power, uh, and uh, if the agent uh, of the foreign power is a is a Russian yep. uh, government employee, that's a pretty clean definition. Uh, and listening to their Conversations, as long as the uh, FISA court has, has permitted such, right. uh, is is permissible and, and legal, and the Congress isn't looking to change that uh, in any party. And so, um, if that's how uh, his conversations were picked up, and he was the uh, the American on the other end of that phone call, um, then again, it's not 702. Right. So it's not entirely germane to talk about masking or unmasking in that context with the 702 reauthorization. So that's the first thing. The second, I, I, I guess I would tell you, is um, to the extent that masking or unmasking happens, 
uh, it seems nefarious, unmasking. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, right. <laughs> it also seems to remind me of this kind of notion of Lone Ranger who's always trying yes. to be, they're always trying to unmask yeah, Exactly. <laughs> uh, the idea for me here is that if there is any legislative reform needed for the process, <clears throat> maybe I'll back up. Uh, I think your listeners know this, uh, but um, General McMaster, myself, people in the national security uh, side of the White House and of the professional side of our community uh, receive intelligence at the highest level on a regular basis. And often that intelligence has been carefully analyzed, sifted, and and, and uh, repackaged in right. a way that would provide some context to the reader. So we don't get raw intelligence. We don't find out that you talked to a guy right. uh, on the third Tuesday. We don't know who you are and what the importance of that context might be. But what we get instead are reports that say, uh, on a certain date, an American uh, citizen or a certain company uh, violated a rule or contacted a, a bad person, and, and then there's a larger context to the story that mm -hmm. we receive. Uh, 99% of the time, we don't have to know the identity of that person. Right. The relevant point is that there is a underlying security threat or a duty to warn of some impending uh, matter that we should attend to. Uh, I don't care if it's Joe, John, Jim, uh, or, or company X, Y, or Z. Occasionally, it would be beneficial for us to understand. So if it was a small company that committed that infraction, it might not be really relevant. But we might want to ask, hey, is this a Fortune 500 company? Is mm -hmm. this somebody that might be moving the markets that did this? Or is this a, an individual that's got some, um, you know, kind of a veneer of authority that might have had a former position? Something of that nature. So every once in a while, it becomes appropriate for us to ask our briefers to go back to the authoritative source and tell us the identity of the otherwise mm -hmm. genericized um, uh, person or company or entity. When that happens, there is a process in place for how they track that request and how they record it back in their parent And you, you, I think you <clears throat> must assume that there's a record forever of the, the fact that you asked for it and maybe what justification you gave for uh, wanting to know it. Well, I think that the concern of some members of Congress is that that's not uniform mm -hmm. and that that process could, uh, could be easier for them to oversee. Uh, and uh, and perhaps even more difficult in its in its practice. And so, uh, of course, one of the things I would always want to offer is that we don't want to impose any difficulty in, in me doing my already difficult job. Right. But we also then have a, a, an issue of trust. Now that I've explained kind of how it works, what you've offered though is an extra layer to this hypothetical concern, right? It's 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 now can you trust me to not take the information I'm given on a regular daily basis, much less mm -hmm. the occasional unmasking that becomes relevant to the context of my understanding, and not go out and leak it to the right. media. And then further, not to leak it for the purpose of political gain. I mean, all of that becomes awfully, awfully um, problematic and troublesome, even in the notion of suggesting it. Right. Um, if I'm leaking classified information, uh, or anybody, frankly, and we've got a problem with that, uh, I should be prosecuted in a way that's um, uh, an example that should chill that behavior. I'm, I'm up to my eyes pissed off with yeah. uh, the leaking of classified information that's taking place uh, both in the Obama administration and the beginning of this administration by the career professionals in the intelligence community. Uh, I don't in, think in my I don't, impression is it's not the flood that it was. I think that we've stemmed it. I think President Trump and I think Attorney General and I think the Director of National Intelligence have made it pretty clear they're not going to tolerate that. Right. We've caught some people and we've tried to, you know, uh, let everybody know there's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. But the fact that people do it, it just blows my mind. Uh, you're, 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 you're jeopardizing sources, you're jeopardizing methods, and in some cases you're jeopardizing people's lives. There's grave mm -hmm. risk 
and there's fragile intelligence that can be lost with even the glimmer of, of suggestion to the bad guys of, of how you might have gotten that information. And so I think people have a whole lot of hubris and a whole lot of uh, nerve doing what they do, putting us all in jeopardy, and then whistling Dixie about it. And for reasons, in my experience, for reasons that when you find them out are astonishingly uh, trivial. Right. Uh, often um, the reporters that report them are the only ones that benefit because they get their name in lights or they might win a prize for, for revealing right. things that are secret and classified. Uh, I think it's appalling. So I don't have much patience for it, and I don't have patience for a lot of the reporters that then choose to print it. Um, but that's just me. I'm not trying to uh, attack the fourth estate, but I think that they should uh, collectively demonstrate a little bit more forbearance. Um, we're all Americans in the same fight. Let me let me ask you the, about the last issue that comes up all the time, which is, uh, and it seems to be the thing that um, at least the House Judiciary Committee seized on, which is ending about uh, uh, the communication intercepts. And about communications intercepts are basically, uh, if you've got an email from me to you, uh, the to and the from line is easy, relatively easy to uh, uh, say we should collect it. But if you ask me, by the way, what's the uh, email address of that terrorist that uh, we were talking to, and I gave it to you in the body of the inner uh, of the uh, communication, that would be a, an about selector. You'd be looking into the communication to find uh, uh, the email address, and. Uh, NSA has had a lot of trouble meeting the requirements of the FISA court, uh, which has been uh, pretty cautious about allowing this kind of communication. And they finally said, you know what, we can't do it now. We can't find a way to meet the requirements of the court, so we're going to stop. Uh, and a lot of people in Congress are saying, okay, fine, it's like a gimme. We'll just say, you stopped, never start. Yeah, so there's maybe a misnomer in that question. Uh, there's two things that happen. The first is the technical difficulties surrounding uh, the, the program itself. Okay, so you're not always um, looking for as if you're the user of a nice application, an email to and an email from and so forth, as if you're in your inbox. Right. Right? <laughs> uh, the people that have to engineer this, so to speak, at the technical level, have to figure out ways to learn how these different technologies work right. kind of on the, on the back end. And so uh, initially that kind of engineering led to uh, the questions of how do I capture information within the confines of the court's order and the statute, but also in a way that allows me to only focus on those things that we might be interested in, right? Uh, they said, well, there's some difficulty in just doing that. Mm -hmm. And so they ended up engineering it in a way that was broader, that would capture, capture not just the to and the from, but the about. Right. right? So that, uh, to, to your question, that's not why uh, we turned it off. The reason we turned it off was that then the captured or collected information couldn't be per appropriately or properly segregated in our back-end databases. In order to treat it the right way and to make sure it wasn't used in the wrong way or searched in a federated kind of manner, uh, we had to do some database engineering. Mm -hmm. That database engineering requires some aforethought. Figuring out how to do it, how to take that information, segregate it, and parse it in a way that then could be appropriately kind of firewalled or stovepiped right. presented a difficulty. And so when I got here to this job, the intelligence community informed me of this, explained to me the details of it. And although they didn't feel that there was any additional abuse, they couldn't 
provide any assurance that it wouldn't be kind of um, abused in some way that would leak between the, the databases as they manage them and as they control them. And so, uh, at least from my perspective, I had a pretty clear set of guiding parameters from the president. Let's be ultra-cautious to the American people in mm -hmm. terms of his sensibilities on privacy. So it wasn't the intelligence community saying, well, we have to turn it off. They were asking, there is a trade-off. Would you like us to turn it off? Because there will be criticism from the court that we can't 100% protect it in the appropriate way. It doesn't mean we're going to abuse it, but we can't technically protect it. Or would you like us to keep it on and get us some extra modicum of information that would allow us to better protect our country? Mm -hmm. That's not an easy decision. No, it's not. Uh, and so to be honest, I'm not looking for a lot of credit, but I think uh, Admiral Rogers and others, uh, NSA uh, director, uh, commander of our uh, newly elevated uh, yes. cyber command, I know you'd want to ask about that, uh, did the right thing, made a recommendation, and I ultimately, on behalf of the president, after consulting other uh, folks here, decided that we should turn that off voluntarily. We did that. It right. remains off to this day. To your question, Congress now says, well, great, let's score a win and statutorily disallow them from turning it back on. I would ask Congress to think very long and hard about doing that. The benefits were real. The engineering difficulties can be overcome. Right. And so uh, turning it off and requiring another act of Congress, which we've now learned in this process, takes about 10 years, yeah, Exactly. <laughs> uh, is, is probably a, an, an unwise overreaction. So instead, uh, think long and hard about provisions or ways that you could make sure we don't turn it back on until you're satisfied, but without having to come back for another act of Congress. Because it, does, it does seem to me you, you, could, you could easily set statutory requirements that are similar to the requirements that you uh, thought through when you were trying to decide, do we keep it or do we turn it off, uh, and say, when you come back and say, we have met those requirements, you report and you turn it on. Let me let me uh, maybe end on an upbeat on that topic anyway. I don't want to end the interview, but uh, with Congress, there's a, a deep and important oversight role and function, and people in this democracy forget that. Yeah. Right? And so I think it's important to end with the importance of the oversight function. I wouldn't want them to trust Tom Bossert to come back to me and I'll decide, right? Because they just won't be able to bring themselves to trust the guy that works for Donald Trump if they're a Democrat, or right. they won't be able to bring themselves to trust somebody that works in an institution that might have some ulterior motive. Fine. But the idea is that the people who have elected them can't look at all this on a regular basis. So they'd like to not just trust the executive branch of government. They'd like to trust the guy they sent to Congress or gal that they yep. sent to Congress to perform their oversight function on their behalf to look at it for them. I think that's how it works. So oversight's good. And that's how you get a two parties reviewing instead of just the one who won the, the last election. That's exactly right. And uh, I am indirectly beholden to the voter as an employee of the President of the United States, uh, but they are directly beholden to the voter, and they're put there as elected representatives in our democratic, in our democratic system. So I'm a big uh, believer in that oversight function. And so if there's anything that requires additional congressional oversight, I think that's appropriate. So I'm last topic, and with, then we'll uh, uh, close up. Uh, um, when you... With oversight comes great responsibility. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. exactly, right. exactly. Right. Uh, uh, Spider-Man's philosophy it, it, of uh, government. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, you finally got out the door in what was as orderly a process as we'd seen, a whole bunch of requirements for um, the agencies to go out and think about cybersecurity in a very serious way. Uh, uh, each of the government agencies had to say, yes, we're, we're taking responsibility for our own risk management decisions and we're sending them in so that if it doesn't work out, you know who to fire. Uh, 
and uh, each of the agencies produced reports on a variety of topics. The one I'm particularly interested in is deterrence, because I, I feel as though we've spent 10 years knowing we are being attacked and um, reluctant to take action to deter it for fear it will spur more attacks. Um, so first, most of those deadlines have passed, and, and they're passed far enough that even with extensions, people probably should have produced them. So how is that process working, and what kind of, now that the workload is back in your office, how's that working, and especially how's it deterrence working? So uh, a number of things. First, thank you. Uh, second, the idea uh, of deterrence ends up having a, a two components to it. You've heard this before. I, I'll, I, I can't take credit for this ne neologism, I guess. Uh, the, who coined the phrase, shoot the archer? <laughs> right. uh, I'm yeah, not yeah, sure. Yeah, but that's, yeah, somebody right. in this uh, cyberspace, I think maybe uh, Keith Alexander, uh, was a proponent of the notion. So uh, you'll hear Senator McCain and others talk about deterrence as if it's a function of uh, punitive retaliation. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. There's a place for that. I sure. think that's absolutely a fair view of the world. And so uh, if the arrows are malware and bits and bytes, uh, defending against them is one thing. Right. Shooting the keyboard actuator, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. Shoot the archer. Uh, that has a lot of merit. And uh, I want to make sure that I explain to the listeners that you don't just shoot the archer with ones and zeros. Mm -hmm. You preserve your right and options to shoot the archer with a real arrow right. or a missile or a trade sanction or some other uh, punitive measure that's in the real world concrete. And uh, the other half, though, is often forget forgotten, I think, or at least misunderstood, is the deterrent effect of increased and better defense. And so if you, the bad guy, want right, to break if, in... If the, you fail, if you consistently fail, that is deterrent. That's right. And, and you know, a really nice, strong, thick front door with a big lock on it uh, is a deterrent. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, enough burglars have seen that lock and that size door that they're not going to waste their time trying to pound down the front door. They might find another vulnerability or try to sneak down your chimney, but they're certainly not going to waste their time standing there pounding against the metal door with a great lock. And so um, not, to, uh, not to butcher the complexity of the cyber challenge, right. but there is a great deal of benefit to increasing our defenses. And so a number of our efforts early have focused on imposing a cyber cost, so to speak, on the malefactor, whether it's a nation mm -hmm. state, a bad actor, or a criminal, uh, or just a guy that wants to cause some sabotage in the cyber world on uh, a thicker, better, uh, more effective shield. And I think that there's some steps we've taken there that some we can talk about, some we can't. Uh, but others are really meant to first practice what we preach. So uh, we had to improve the security of our federal networks and yeah. databases, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what you'll see is uh, an effort right now underway to immediately uh, prefer services, right? So cloud-based services, yes. shared services, shared security services. I think it's really uh, sensible to think that a very small one of our 190 or 195 de federal departments and agencies are going to be able to all equally mount uh, a credible and complicated, expensive defense against a dedicated Chinese collection operation. Uh, and so we're trying to share those services, uh, and we're trying to modernize our federal IT because we found ourselves defending not what was indefensible, but pretty close right. in some cases. 
So we were defending antiquated or more difficult to defend um, systems, and so we're improving those things. That's kind of the status in a nutshell. Uh, the second part, though, of the three-part executive order wasn't deterrence. That was the third part. Mm -hmm. first part was improving our own networks yes. and systems. The second part was to figure out the really Gordian knot problem of how do we better protect the rest of us. Yes. The critical infrastructure owners and operators that are on the dot-com, the, uh, the, the, steward, grid. the the grid, uh, the, the step-toe, mm -hmm. uh, you know, law firms and so forth. And so that's a difficult one because it doesn't readily lend itself to a collectivized, centralized defense. Right. Right? So the people who think of a collective, centralized defense, uh, like our Department of Defense, tend to think, why can't I simply tell Secretary Mattis to defend us better? And uh, I think the answer to that is that the Internet and the medium of the Internet and all of the connected and interconnected uh, technology and data is really a, a perfectly distributed shared responsibility. So we have to find a way to better integrate the government. Yep. And that is a political question. And if we can't get 702 through, uh, we're going to have a hard time having an open and honest debate about how much we want the government involved in securing our Internet. So it's interesting. I mean... In terms of the U.S. government, DHS is taking a bigger role. They issued their first binding directive on Kaspersky. Uh, um, they, it's clear we've started to integrate better uh, within the civilian uh, side of government. But over on the non-governmental civilian side, we're encrypting it's, our emails, yeah. we're issuing binding operational directives. Those are yeah, big yeah. things for people that don't listen. From the outside, they think that sounds silly. But to have one department issue a binding oh, directive no, on other it, departments, uh, and then for us here in the White House, for us here in the years. White House, well, I'll tell you why. We've empowered them to do that. Yeah. And so if they think there's a higher power to appeal to, they're wrong, because they're going to appeal to President Trump or me, and we're going to say, if you don't do it, you're fired. Right. And so that's a very empowering feeling for DHS. I hope they feel that support. Uh, once or twice I've gone out and, and expressed an opportunity for them to get even better than they already right. are. I think they don't quite, they, they, they can't quite believe it because, of no, course, no, that of was course, not the situation. Of course, there were some at DHS that came back to me and said, boy, why are you going out and publicly criticizing this? And I said, no, I'm not. You don't understand. So now often you'll hear me uh, in my remarks say, you don't have to be bad to get better. Right. Uh, I'm seeking opportunities for us to improve. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I don't mean let's improve next week. We're doing that. I mean let's figure out a way that the next time I'm crazy enough in 10 years to come back into this seat, that I don't inherit the same strategy that I left with. And that's exactly what I did this time. Yeah. I left with a strategy that you helped develop, yeah. that I worked on uh, right. quite considerably. And I thought to myself at the time we wrote that, that they'll implement it, and it'll probably be like other government strategies, uh, ready for refresh in three, four years. Right. I came back and found it was still the operative extant strategy for the United States. It hadn't been fully implemented. And it was 10 years That's later. Discouraging. It's extremely discouraging, and it's not for lack of trying or hard work. No. It's because some of these problems are difficult. And in other, in other cases, I would offer the last administration had a different view of internal government management, at least on federal networks. But I would say that the still difficult challenge is a unifying vision. Mm -hmm. And uh, to your point, the Israelis have one view and sensibility, and they've got a big government role in protecting their country and their networks. The British have now had a slightly different uh, trust in government, less but greater than ours. Yes. And they've got an ability to then take their government authorities and protect some parts of their society, but not all, uh, what we would consider kind of our critical infrastructure. Uh, the Americans have this strong uh, streak of distrust in government, which I love in a lot of ways. Right. But uh, at some point, we're going to have to trust some institutional solution to provide some security to our network-based world, 
or we're going to continue to operate in a way that, that subjects us to um, significant untenable and sustainable risk. And that makes it very hard to, to take the last step, which is uh, a deterrence, to, to say we will punish you because the response is, well, if you think this is bad, we have more where that comes from. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So uh, we have to establish the norms of behavior, and the reason that's important isn't because I'm a big uh, international law uh, you know, scholar that suggests that we have to operate through the UN and that multilateral bodies are the best enforcement mechanisms. Far from it. Uh, multilateral bodies are the worst enforcement mechanisms. They're intentionally right. slow to act. Um, I do, though, think that we should have some common agreement among like-minded countries that all find some benefit in the Internet uh, as to what we'll do and what we won't do. Because otherwise, we'll all retreat if we wait too long. I saw this. I said this the other day. You might have seen it. If we wait too long and do too little, we'll wake up and in haste have no choice but to adopt the Chinese or Russian model. Right, which and, is to basically cut ourselves off and say we're going to inspect everything as it crosses our, uh, our border. That's right. And, and to put a uh, firewall around us, the Great Firewall of China, uh, will become the Fortress USA and the Internet won't be as useful or beneficial. And the data that we look at every day will be increasingly subject to question and uh, that, will, that will really break apart what we think of as this great innovation. So uh, there's where we stand. I think that we have a lot to do. And uh, unlike the reports of what I said the other day, I'm not pessimistic. Uh-huh. I'm optimistic that we'll be able to set a vision that will make a lot of incremental success, uh, positive steps. But I think if we do the type of thing that we need to do, we, uh, we are Kennedy calling for a return to the moon in some sense. It's not quite the same analogy, but it's something that Kennedy didn't do 10 minutes or one year after he called for it. Right. Uh, no, this, is a, this is an enormously difficult task, and it's going to be uh, because we have an actual... It, it's as though the moon were uh, a sentient being that didn't want to be landed on. That's, That's right. our problem. There you I, go. <laughs> I like that. I like that. All right. So, uh, listen, Tom, uh, you've been really generous with your time. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you uh, so much. Uh, do you have any, like, events coming up where you're going to be giving speeches that people should know about? Uh, geez, I don't want to... Yeah, coming soon to a theater near you. I think I'm going to do uh, some events with... Um, uh, with Jane Harmon and a few other cyber events upcoming. Uh, so Wilson Center, okay. uh, probably next. Sounds good. Thank you very Thanks much. so much. Stuart, good to see you. All right. That has been Episode 187 of the Cyber Law Podcast, a bonus brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, please do send us your suggestions for interviews uh, in the future. Uh, uh, and mar- uh, mark your calendars, not just mark your calendars. You should be here November 7th uh, at our DuPont Circle office. You just have to go to the steptoe.com events page and um, uh, RSVP. You don't even have to do that, but uh, it would be nice so that we can plan for uh, numbers. Uh, the uh, past events, at least those we held with Lawfare, uh, turned out to be remarkable singles events as far as I could tell. So uh, you'll want to come for one reason or another. Uh, We'll be talking about election security on election day. It'll be a good panel, uh, and I hope to see you there as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.